It's Wednesday, September 25th. Welcome to the 500th episode of Market Foolery. Oh, oh my oh, God. Bravo. I, I, I didn't even realize. I feel honored. I yeah. don't know what to say. This I'm Chris great. Hill. Joining me in studio today, the very surprised Matt Argersinger from Motley Fool Supernova and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. See, I, I, I kept it a secret oh, from man. you guys. 500. You, you told us to trust you. I said. And we kind of didn't. But now I'm glad we did. Well, a little behind a the scenes. I think so, I said in an email, I trust you implicitly. <laughs> oh, okay. was, you did. <laughs> yeah. You did. But just a little behind the scenes for our dozens of listeners. Uh, typically in the morning, we'll trade emails. Hey, I'm looking at this story. I'm looking at that story. And and uh, and uh, Maddie and Jason were pitching me stories. I said, no, no, no. Just trust me. <laughs> just trust me. Awesome. Uh, because today it's it's all about our dozens of listeners. Uh, I've mentioned before, you can follow us on Twitter at MarketFoolery. And this morning from one of our listeners, Antoine Lever, uh, or Lever, apologies if I'm mispronouncing the last name, uh, on Twitter, uh, he hit us up and wrote, Dear Chris Hill, time for a round of overvalued, undervalued on Market Foolery, please. And he signed it, one of your dozens of listeners. So we are going to do a round of overvalued, undervalued. We will also dip into the full mailbag, but let's start uh, with overvalued. Uh, Maddie, I'll start with you. What's a stock that you think is overvalued? And I preface this by saying, year to date, we've talked about what a great year it's been for the market. The market is up 19%. The S&P 500 up 19% year to date. What do you got that's overvalued? Well, I have a stock right here that's up more than 200% year to date. And I, I am blown away. If you told me at the beginning of this year that this stock was going to be up 200%, I would have taken every single bet against that. <laughs> The company is Best Buy, Ooh. left for dead as as early you know as as recently as a year ago, up two hundred percent. It's up. To, it's back to about a thirteen billion dollar valuation now. I I haven't shopped at Best Buy in a long time, but I gotta imagine that there are more crickets in Best Buy's now <laughs> than there are, there are customers. But I'm gonna take the other side of it real quick. Okay. I, I, okay. I, I will let you finish in a minute, but I will say that the Best Buy that is closest to Full HQ. I've been in there a bunch of times. It's uh, it's down uh, Pentagon City Mall. Uh, that, it, uh, yeah, it's on the way to Crystal City. Okay, right. right, uh, right. It's down Jeff Davis Highway, and the you know the Target is there, that sort of thing. I I am amazed at the transformation of that location, and I think I've said on this podcast before. If this is what they're doing in all their locations, then I'm going to give them a chance. Maybe not a great chance, but I'm going to give them a chance because they redid <laughs> the inside of that store, and it's it is um, it's it. A much better consumer experience, but okay. by all means, go ahead. But well, that, I'm, but that doesn't mean the stock should be up it's like two, that over two hundred percent. I just look at, I look at the landscape of this industry, and I look at you know what Walmart and Target are doing. I look at Amazon with all the online options. I look at insiders at Best Buy, Best Buy who are sell- I mean, so CEO Hubert Jolie. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name. Hubert right. Jolie. Hubert Jolie. Sold six, almost $17 million worth of stock recently, and now that apparently was because he's getting divorced and it's a nasty settlement and he's got to, he's had to cash out. But he sold $16.7 million. Chairman Richard Schultz, the founder of Best Buy, sold $46 million. This is all within the last month. And I feel like with Best Buy now, with, I keep wanting to say Best Buy now, with Best Buy sort of hitting a, a multi-year high here after such a big gain, a lot of insiders are cashing out. It's, it seems to me like this is the one... That they they're calling a bit of a top. They they I think they themselves have been surprised by the revival in Best Buy and its ability to sort of um, have this great year in the face of all the competition from from the companies I mentioned. So I feel Best Buy is overvalued. So you're saying if you own this stock, congratulations on a great 2013 so far. Ring the register. But as as we as we talked about recently on Investor Beat, it might be time to take some money off the table. I, I, I absolutely think so. Jason, what do you got? 
Uh, so I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm, I'm actually a, a somewhat of a user of the service, uh, but you know, Pandora has had one hell of a 2013. But I mean, I look at the stock today. And Up about 160 percent yeah, this year, and and that's great, terrific. They're doing a good job of building out the business, but I, I do find uh, with the competitive forces shaping up in, in that in that particular market, I, I look at the stock, and I, I think you have to be at least a little bit concerned, particularly with the rollout of the new Apple iOS and the iTunes Radio feature. That I mean, yeah, that that's brought in I think 10 or 11 million maybe unique users uh, to date. And Pandora acknowledged that they saw a, a little bit of an effect from that. But I think the, the longer-term question is, you know, we had about 200 million-plus downloads of that iOS. Mm-hmm. And, and iPhone 5, 5S, 5C has all done really well. So I think that as time goes on, that, that I, the iTunes radio product is going to get in a, lot more, uh, in a lot more hands. And so, you know, I mean, you look at Pandora, they offered up more equity not too terribly long ago. And, and that was fine. I mean, the stock seemed to seemed to actually kind of like it. I mean, it seemed like it did pretty well. Kind of gave the stock an adrenaline boost over the next few days yep. from like 15% up. They got a new CEO. Uh, new CEO. But you know, again, I mean, I look back to, if you look at the valuation alone and, and its estimates for this full year, somewhere between break even and $0.05 cents per share. Let's just cut that in the middle here and say, okay, well, $0.03 cents gives it a P.E. ratio of more than 800 times today. Now, I mean, <laughs> that's not the only way to judge a business like this because it's still busy growing and investing in itself. Even if you look at its cash flow from operations perspective, I mean, it's negative cash flow from operations here virtually every year in existence. So I just I feel like it's gotten way ahead of itself. It does provide a good product. And I'm not saying you shouldn't own the stock, but I don't think you should be buying it today because I think it's overvalued. Do you think that Pandora is ultimately maybe not looking to get acquired, but if you're Pandora and some large tech company uh, comes to you, you're probably listening, aren't you? I think you have to consider that. I mean, Someone I, with deep pockets comes to you, you're listening. Well, yeah. Now, I mean, the big question was, why didn't Apple, for example, buy Pandora? Why didn't Google buy Pandora? Because, I mean, the, the obvious answer is because they felt like they could do it better. Um, and and maybe, that, maybe they can. Maybe they have. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll prove out. But, I mean, you also have to look at the fact that Pandora – they they get about ninety percent of their revenue comes from advertising, which is I don't know how how sustainable that is. I don't know how reliable that is. And when you look at something like an Apple or a Google, yes, Google does also get ninety five percent of its revenue from advertising, but it's a much more uh, a much more powerful platform that they have. One uh, storyline I think is worth keeping an eye on with respect to Pandora and frankly with iTunes Radio as well uh, has to do with the artists. Because Apple is paying artists slightly more than Pandora is paying artists. Pandora is actively trying to get Congress to pass legislation to enable them to pay less. And it wouldn't surprise me if at some point down the road you start to see artists breaking more for iTunes radio simply because they're getting paid more. I, this is a distinct possibility. And I mean, I think, you know, when you look at like the video versus the music side of this, I mean, the video with streaming and Amazon and Netflix and stuff like that versus versus music side of things. I mean, I, the music side of things, royalties, it's just extremely difficult to understand because yeah. there's so many hands in that cookie jar. Anybody who tells you they understand it, I, I mean, is probably lying because, I mean, it's just it, it is so convoluted at this point that I think e- even when Apple throws in just an incremental boost in that payout, well, you know, eventually money talks. Yeah, and I, I, to, to Jason's point, I just, I just hope that the new CEO Brian McAndrews can figure that out because I agree, it's that is going to be the the royalty issue is going to be huge, and he has 
purely a, a sort of a web mobile advertising background, and I think right. that's what Pandora's betting on. I think Pandora says, we, "Hey, we're, we're going to figure out the whole music licensing thing. We we got the music situation figured out. Now we just need to figure out how to monetize our platform more." And that might be the wrong move. They might want to try to step back and say, "Gosh, maybe we we need to figure this out first before we actually figure out how to make some money." Let's move over to undervalued, uh, Maddie. What do you got? Well, I've got one that a lot of you know. I think a lot of investors are going to shake their head if I say it's undervalued, but but I think it is. Cena. Which is um, ticker S I N A. It's the it's the largest Chinese internet portal. It also owns and it's, a, and it's only up about sixty sixty five percent year to oh, date. Yeah. So therefore, sure, <laughs> uh, you know it's around it's a little less than a six billion dollar market cap. The big story here with with Cena is Weibo, which is its Twitter like microblog like service. Um, it's got five hundred million users. Growing like by leaps and bounds. Um, Cena has also got the the online portal part of it, which um, is also growing very nicely. Very, you know, obviously advertising focused business. But I look at Cena, and I see it's 500 million users. I see all the growth in China in, in terms of internet advertising, mobile advertising. I look at Twitter, which is probably going to come public at somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 billion dollar market cap. I oh, look yeah. at Facebook's valuation today at about 120 billion, and I ask myself if those. If those companies are really worth that, those types of market valuations, then I have to look at Cena's sub six billion market cap and say it's got to be worth a lot more. They were talking on CNBC this morning about how there are odds makers in Las Vegas who have already started placing a line on what t- what Twitter's share price will be when it goes public. Right now, the over under is I think thirty four dollars a share, somewhere in that neighborhood. And the close on opening day, odds makers are saying low 50s. Oh, no kidding. So uh, along those lines, is uh, is Weibo something that Cena would conceivably spin off to unlock the value? Or Well, interesting that you say that. So I don't think so, but uh, Alibaba, by the way, speaking of potentially new public companies, Alibaba, which is a huge Chinese e-commerce company, has recently kind of made moves to maybe become public in the U.S. at something like a $70 billion valuation. They recently bought a small sliver of Twitter. Yep. I'm sorry, of Weibo. Um, that that put a pretty high valuation on Weibo, valuing it almost about as of a month ago, almost the, as the, the entire value of Cena. So they're interested in Weibo. They obviously see something there, yeah. and so it's conceivable that Cena could sell to them at a, a high valuation. But I, I don't think so. Either way, I think Cena's sub six billion dollar market cap, cheap, undervalued. And the ticker one more time: S I N A. Jason, what do you got? Well, so I know a lot of fools out there already familiar with Markel, but truthfully speaking, I think I feel like today's market it's pretty easy to find overvalued stocks because they're pretty much all overvalued. I mean, it's like <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've been looking more and more at this in Markel, uh, which is a company that we obviously a lot of us here really like. Um, Markel today is just really trading at a very attractive valuation. It's only about 1.15 times book value. It's basically kept pace with the market this year, which is which is fine. Yeah, but, exactly. But it's I mean, not. It's, it's not sure. It's kind of boring. It's not moon. something that's going to like. Double it's not overnight. like a Chinese. <laughs> Chinese Twitter. <laughs> There's a little bit more certainty there than that, but I, I do think that uh, when you look at the company's valuation today, when you look at the management team they have in place, Chief, uh, Chief Investing Officer Tom Gaynor, we obviously are very fond of. He does a great job uh, of, of taking the the float that that company generates in, in reinvesting it and in, in really growing uh, that investment over time. You know, I was looking just at some numbers here, so. Over since 2003, they've been able to grow their book value of the, of the shares at, at a compound annual growth rate of about 12.5 percent. 
And so what that tells us, it's, it's no secret. I mean, they've done this in, you know, ever since the company really came public. They've been able to really grow the book value of that company at a significant pace and a reliable pace, uh, but, but, you know, nothing, nothing sort of out of whack. Uh, but the valuation typically trades more along the 1.3 to 1.5 times book value uh, and even loftier at times. But I think the real key here is that this recent Altera acquisition, which essentially doubled the investment portfolio for Tom Gaynor. Um, now, Altera held a very conservative sort of bond-oriented portfolio. Uh, Gainer is going to take that money and divert it into more equity, into some more uh, sort of private ventures as well. Um, and I think that over time, you know, they've already proven proven themselves as great stewards of capital. I think they'll continue to do that. I think today's price uh, is certainly a very attractive one for a company. If you're looking to hold it for the next, you know, 10, 20 years, this is a good one. I agree with Jason. I, I own Markel and de- definitely do plan to hold it for, for 10 to 20 years. I would also add that, you know, a lot of Investors look at the insurance space and say, "Well, aren't aren't they going to be get hurt with when interest rates rise?" Not necessarily true for a company like Markel, which does invest in a lot of equities and has sort of long dated, more long dated fixed income uh, book. Uh, it, higher interest rates could actually help them because they now have such high um, interest, uh, you know, investment leverage with the Altera acquisition. So, incremental increases in interest rates. Could actually benefit them. That's, benefit an, their that's book a value. great point, and I mean that's a concern we've had a lot of a lot of insurers is these legacy bond portfolios that are now coming due. You know, they they were established a while back when rates were significantly higher, and and now the question is, what are these companies going to do with these with these bond portfolios? They don't have that exposure, that experience to investing in equities so much. Where where Markel really does uh, just ma- just makes it a really attractive holding. Yeah. Tom Gaynor. Obviously, a great investor, a great business leader, etc. And yet, I hear you guys talking about this company, and I cannot help but wonder what kind of team does Gainer have around him? Because, to a large extent, it sounds like the investment thesis for Markel is tied almost entirely to Tom Gainer, which is great as long as he's there and doing a great job. But just as Buffett, uh, over the past few years, has begun to diversify and give uh, some portfolio uh, allocation to Ted Weschler, Todd Combs, Ajit Jain, etc., what kind of team does Tom Gaynor have around him? Because I would feel even more – I don't own shares of Markel. I would feel even more comfortable if I knew that either Tom Gaynor was in staggeringly great health and was an incredibly safe driver. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, he also has a, a, a really good team around him. Well, so Gaynor is a young guy. I mean, he's a, he's a good guy. Looks like he's in pretty good health there. I mean, he's, he's visited us here at Full HQ before. Uh, CEO Alan Kirshner, uh, very well received among his employees. High Glassdoor ratings. Uh, chairman, I believe, Steve Markel. Right. Another another. Uh, you know, valuable asset to that team. So I, I think that they have, yeah, Gainer is the one that gets a lot of the press because he does most of what we're so interested in, in right. investing in equities. But, but you know, it's a good question to ask. And I think that overall, that's, that's one of the things we've seen a very consistent uh, team that they've built there that worked very well together. And the results, the results speak for themselves. Yeah. And I think Tom Gainer's mid to late forties. Maybe. Somewhere in the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Says the guy in his mid forties. Um, uh, before we dip into the mailbag, uh, again, just want to uh, thank all of our dozens of listeners uh, uh, here on our 500th episode. Uh, if the, you know, 
for anyone who's ever seen the show on ESPN, pardon the interruption, uh, hosted by Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon, and for those who haven't, um, it's uh, two guys who spent many years at the Washington Post as columnists, sports columnists, and in a show that is helmed by our friend Eric Rideholm. Uh, it's gone on to great success for over the last 12 years at ESPN, and it's the two of them talking about the sports news of the day and what each of them has said about that show is they actually did that show for 20 years before it ever made air. They just did it in the offices Mm. of the Washington Post. They were arguing back and forth about sports. And I feel like that's kind of what market foolery is. And uh, when we when we first pitched this idea, and I'll get to that in a second, um, that's how I thought about it. Because this these are the conversations that we have around the office. It's just that we decided, oh, let's let's actually get in a room and and turn on the mics. Uh, but without our dozens of listeners, it would just be another typical day where we're talking amongst ourselves. Um, there's one person I want to thank. I don't think I've ever mentioned this person before. Um, it's Jeremy Phillips. Uh, Jeremy is the chief technology officer here at the Motley Fool. Uh, but back in January 2011, um, he was in charge of uh, Fool.com and all of the Fool.com operations, uh, which included at the time uh, the Motley Fool Money radio show. Um, and uh, Matt Greer and I pitched this idea to Jeremy. He was the one who gave us the green light to do this. Um, he is um, one of our leaders at this company. It's certainly a behind-the-scenes guy. Uh, but uh, And probably one of our dozens of listeners. At least on occasion. At least on occasion, uh, I would think. Um, but uh, <laughs> but no, Jeremy, if you've ever been to the Motley Fool offices, everyone has a, a little sign next to their desk with uh, sort of their their core value, their Motley value. Uh, um, and Jeremy's is break things quickly. And he is uh, one of the great champions of the whole notion of test things as quickly as possible, learn as much as you can, and move on. So I think um, I'm thinking at least on some level he thought – well, let's surely you get this idea for a daily podcast. Let's test that. Maybe, maybe he was, you know, maybe he, he was hoping we weren't going to make it to 500 episodes. I don't know, but I know that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him giving us the green light. So thank you to Jeremy for JP. that. And if I may, I mean, let's take this opportunity to congratulate you because you've been here since this podcast inception and have been a key fundamental part of its success. And although Mac isn't behind the glass anymore, obviously Mac Greer as well, yeah. uh, along with you know, along with the rest of our tremendous staff, it's really able to get yeah. this get this out to everybody. Bravo. Uh, email from Matt Ainsley in Philadelphia. Um, by the way, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before. We earlier this year we brought our radio show to American University in Washington D.C. We're going to be doing that again in 2014 when we get the date nailed down. We'll let people know about that. Uh, but we are also talking to a business school in Philadelphia about possibly bringing the radio show up there as well. So. We'll keep you posted on that. Uh, anyway, uh, Matt emails us. I'm writing with a question about the financial education of kids. I think it was Jason Moser who talked recently about teaching his kids about investing, and I've been doing the same. I've begun with the concept of compound interest, and I think they've grasped it pretty strongly since they're putting every penny they can in the second National Bank of Dad, which uh, is a concept I <laughs> got great. from an economics podcast called Econ Talk. Um, in essence, money they bank with me to a yet-to-be-decided limit gets 5% interest per month compounded monthly. Damn, I want to invest in this <laughs> bank. 
That's five percent monthly combat. <laughs> he's trying. He's trying to make a point because if you just let it go, I understand. With rates, I'm just the kids saying. are going to be like, I got a penny. Yeah, Matt, give me in on that. I'll, I'll give you a thousand dollars right now. You might want to open this up. Um, <laughs> anyway, his his email continues. So every month we talk about how much free money they get by deferring gratification, and they've begun to learn to do math in their heads. But there's so much more to know, and there's always the risk they will get bored if I try and teach them something they don't have the perspective to understand yet. In what order would you recommend lessons be taught to kids about investing? Um, it's a great question because we do talk a lot about financial education in this country being anywhere from not quite enough to woeful. Uh, um, but I was talking recently with Brian Richards, um, one of our colleagues, and uh, he was talking about some recent studies he'd seen that – even financial education in in high school on some level is too late because a lot of times it's, – it's a little bit of a conundrum because at the time when kids start learning about money, they don't really have a lot of money to invest. And at the time that they do have money to invest, it's, it's not too late to learn about investing, but it would have been ideal to learn about it sooner. Yeah, let me just say, Matt, I really like your last name. Ainsley, I mean that's and the first name's not bad. my daughter. My daughter's name is Ainsley, so 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 great last name, Matt. Um, uh, you know, I that that's an excellent question. I, I don't know that there's one stock answer. I mean, I would say the way that there there was a bit of serendipity in in how I was able to get my kids into it because we just happened to go to lunch at a Panera one day and and sat down and you know we just were goofing around eating and I said, hey, you guys know we actually own a little bit of this restaurant. They're like, what? And so then I explained to them the stock holding on some shares of Panera. And so from that point, then they, they developed a little bit more interest. And so the way I framed investing was essentially you're just becoming a part owner of any of these companies that you really like. And that's, you know, that's how we frame it, I think, a lot here with a lot of our services. And it's a very foolish way to invest is, is looking at that long-term ownership perspective. Uh, so, I mean, it wasn't as much, it wasn't as much sort of the, the math and the compounding initially, but what we've done since then, because they now own five stocks together, and I, we keep track of their score in my scorecard on fool.com. And so they're able to, to literally check in daily if they want, and they can see how much they paid for their position, what that position is worth now, and then, you know, in, in total, how they're performing against the market. And and maybe it's maybe they've they've got enough of that competitive fire that when they see that they're beating the market they get pretty stoked about that so mm-hmm. that's kind of nice too. Um, but I, I think the other point that he's making with saving I think that's really that's where it has to start. I think you have to be yeah. able to get that concept of pay yourself first by saving, put it somewhere, and and you know so our girls have piggy banks and, and some of that money goes in there too. I can't top anything Jason said. I thought I think that was great. I will point out one one small risk to Jason's approach here in that, and I think you shared with this with me the other day, which is as soon as you tell you know your your children that they own something, they're like, we got to go there all the time. Yeah, yep. Daddy, you got to buy me that new iPhone. Hey, we own shares in Apple, and I that's mean. the exact example, right? I was at the mall with Hannah the other day, and after Justice and Claire's, we hit the Apple store, and yeah. Daddy, I own Apple stock. Shouldn't I have an Apple product? It'll help the and company. I was It'll help the virtually stock. Virtually speechless at that point I, I couldn't I, I couldn't dispute her logic but the, the, uh, the point you made and uh, I've seen this with my own children the, I think being able to I, I think it's a great lesson and one they won't get bored with um, is tying the businesses that they see around them to investing and saying oh yes these are even even if you don't own stock in it it just it starts the conversation but saying yes Disney is a company that you can buy stock in. So is Starbucks, so is Panera, so is Under Armour, et cetera, et cetera. But I think getting them to look at the world less in terms of 
oh, this is a brand or this is a toy that I want and flipping the switch to, wait a minute, this is a business that I could possibly own one day. And that's that's something that uh, Tom Gardner, our CEO, and his brother David have talked about with that they learned from their father, just sort of tying the world around them uh, to investing. Yeah, so, the Jello pudding story. That's what that was, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah, pudding. yeah. We own, yeah, buy more pudding. <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, I should mention for, uh, this is probably better for older kids or frankly for anyone who is new to investing, we have a, a special free report, uh, which is the essential guide to successful investing. It's really a, a great way to get started and you can get the report. It's free. Uh, just shoot an email to startinvesting at fool.com. That's startinvesting at fool.com. It gives a great overview, really an investing one-on-one, the basics on mutual funds, ETFs, and of course, stocks, because this is The Motley Fool. And uh, one of the things this report does is is guide you in terms of choosing the best stocks for you. So start investing at fool.com. Drop an email, you get the report right away. Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, happy 500th, guys. Yeah, Thanks, congrats, Chris. Chris. Here's, congrats. here's to the next 500. Yes. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>